1: I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like
2: this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Today is Monday. It's 12 o'clock and that means it has to be time for What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. And uh, we are going to start this show with my favorite part. Well, not really my favorite part. My favorite part is usually the interview, but I have to say that I really get a kick out of compiling this list of joys and sorrows. And this week, I have some really cool ones to share with you. So I'm going to start right off with um, first of all, did you know that the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was signed into law by President Obama nearly seven years ago, is now finally, finally being implemented? Uh, Quote, we estimate that processed foods covered by this rulemaking are responsible for approximately 903,000 Foodborne illnesses each year at a total cost to the American public of approximately $2.2 billion. That's billion with a B. That's the FDA's economic analysis of the rule. Um, this was explained in Food Safety News this very morning. So we should all rejoice in the fact that finally the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is replacing rules which were implemented uh, and coded uh, some 80 years ago, we finally have a little bit of an update on that. So we should be seeing some kind of a dis- decrease in food safety, uh, foodborne illnesses in this country anyway. Um, and then secondly, uh, another really piece of good news, of another really good piece of news. Sorry, you guys. Finally, seafood is getting some attention. There is a new satellite-based surveillance system that has been launched that can track commercial fishing trawlers. The idea is to find pirates as well as addressing the rampant fish fraud that goes on in the industry. And this could be a real boon to helping fish stocks repopulate, as well as locating and shutting down illegal fishing. I don't know if you people know just how much money is involved in fish fraud, but it is in the billions of dollars. And the problems with identifying and tracing fish have plagued the industry, as well as restaurateurs for decades. And only now in the last few years, I'm sure you've all been aware of the, the sporadic news reports that come out about how the... The Dover sole you bought is actually Pollock or, you know, something that you really shouldn't have been spending 18 or $25 a pound on. So we should rejoice in the fact that seafood is finally getting some significant attention. Um, tomorrow, and this comes from The Fern, uh, their Chuck Abbott's Ag Insider column, which is really excellent. I'm too cheap to actually subscribe to it, but I do read the headlines every day. Tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a meeting to discuss, you won't believe this, to discuss consolidation and competition in the U.S. seed and agrochemical industry. And guess who will be testifying? None other than DuPont, Dow, Syngenta, Monsanto, Bayer, the American Farm Bureau Federation, the National Corn Growers Association, the National Farmers Union, and one lonely person from the American Antitrust Institute huh the cow is so far out of the barn on this that you just wonder why they're even bothering at this point. I mean, I think you know that the Monsanto-Bear deal went by, went through last week um, after apparently very little negotiation. Uh, but the um, bear company has bought Monsanto. They will undoubtedly be rebranding it, and the name Monsanto will be disappearing so that we don't have something to focus our ire upon. Um, and there will be other... Uh, Ish, other aspects of this deal that will slowly come to light, but I think it's it's just astonishing that they are beginning to wake up. I don't know. I mean, I, just looking at the at the people who are attending this event, I can't get over the the Dupont Dowson. Gen- these are all the people who have just recently merged. So, what are they talking to them about now that the deals are done, the contracts are signed, and c- consolidation has happened? I'm you know I'm just baffled by the whole thing. Anyway. I thought you'd like to know that because it really is an astonishing fact. Um, But here is some good news. France has become the very first country to ban plastic plates, cups and utensils. And by the way, France is also the very first country to ban food waste by grocery stores. We could definitely take a few pages from their playbook, don't you think? We should be banning all that plastic stuff. And we could be banning the uh, landfill dumping of expired food from grocery stores with 42 million food insecure people in this country, I think that would really be a good step in the right direction. And speaking of that, uh, here's my last little joy and sorrow here. This is sort kind of a combination of both joy because I don't know, I couldn't believe this guy outed himself the way he did, and sorrow because he is representative of most Republicans and indeed most of Congress. Um, but I was in DC last week uh, to interview Shelley Pingree, and you'll be hearing that in a couple of weeks. Um, And she suggested that I stop by various members of Congress, various House of, you know, various representatives from different states that she works with. And a lot of them were Republicans, which I thought was great. So I will not name names, but I went into the office of one particular um, uh, Republican uh, member of the House. And I asked him, I explained who I was and what my business was. And I said, would you be interested in appearing on my podcast to talk about food policy or agricultural policy, farm bill, stuff like that? And he said, well, what's the problem? We don't have a problem. He said, "Uh, industry, um, industry sets food policy, he told me. He actually said that. Industry sets food policy. Take that in for a moment, folks. And then he followed that up by saying, and no one is starving. And at first I thought I had misheard him. And I said, I'm sorry, what did you say? Did you say people are starving? He said, no, no one is starving. I'm not kidding you when I say that my jaw hit the floor. It just absolutely hit the freaking floor. And I said to him, um, but but, what about the 42 million food insecure people in this country? Are you saying that's not a problem for a wealthy country like the United States to have that kind of a statistic? At which point he said to me, I don't think I want to be on your podcast. <laughs> I did my best to reel him in. You know, I was like, oh, but I'll tell you, I'll give you the questions in advance. And I just want to hear what you think about crop subsidies, about farm insurance, about this, about that. I mean, I understand you're all about promoting small farmers. Yes, he said, we must let the market decide. We must not place regulations in the way of free enterprise, et cetera. But the whole fact that he tells me that industry sets the food policy, I think we I think we've noticed that, haven't we? And we've also noticed how brilliantly that model is working for us. I looked this up this morning when I was getting ready for this broadcast. The total estimated cost of diagnosed diabetes alone, diabetes alone in 2012, was $245 billion, billion with a B, including $176 billion in direct medical costs and $69 billion in decreased productivity. Add in the heart disease, the hypertension, the obesity, and the other diet related diseases. You can see how well our food system is working for us. That is, if you think eating mostly processed foods is a success story. This guy was just, I couldn't believe what he said. I, I, and he was a perfectly reasonable looking person. He didn't have three heads, he, he had two eyes, a nose, and a mouth like the rest of us. I mean, <laughs> there were no horns sprouting. <laughs> But this is uh, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about get out the vote because somebody elected this fool and that somebody is us. And so when you're going into the poll, it behooves you to read their pages of what legislation they have sponsored or co-sponsored, where they voted. Look at Food Policy Action. Look at that website because you'll see what their scorecard is and you really and every single member of the House and every single senator has a web page with more or less information about what they do, what they accomplish in their respective roles. And I really urge you to pay attention to this, because when you have a fool like this who is crafting legislation on the Agricultural Committee, um, then you have just reached sort of a nadir of moronic, um, what is the word I'm searching for? I am searching for a word, and the word is groupthink. <laughs> very nice Dave very nice anyway with that let us move on to our guest we are going to be talking with Arlen Wasserman today Arlen is a guy that everybody should know about and yet he plays it so under the radar it's just incredible but he really is kind of like the Scarlet Pimpernel we seek him there we seek him there he is just he's all over the place and yet Nobody. I mean, at least I wasn't that aware of him uh, a few years ago before I was introduced. In any case, we'll have a quick sponsor drop. We'll come right back with Arlen Wasserman, who is a founding partner of Changing Taste, a consulting firm that works with industry on sustainability. And we, I promise, will have a very interesting conversation. So stay tuned.
0: And this is Walking Like a Cowboy by Techstar. We'll be right back.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is the wonderful Arlen Wasserman. I'm going to read his bio, which is so impressive. Um, Arlen Wasserman is a founder, founding partner, in fact, the founder of Changing Tastes, a consultancy uh, that works with industry on sustainability projects. He is also a fellow at the Aspen Institute, as well as a past recipient of a Food and Society Policy Fellowship, which was awarded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Arlen holds master's degree. Degrees in natural resource sciences and public health, and he has served as an advisor on agriculture, trade, and development issues to both the USDA and the European Union Parliament. From 2007 till 2012, Arlen was the vice president of sustainability at Sodexo, the world's leading institutional food service provider, uh, leading its efforts to develop and implement its first sustainability strategy that encompassed both environmental and public health concerns, as if that were not enough. Arlen, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show, and I can't believe it's taken me so long to get you here.
3: <laughs> My pleasure to be here. Uh, I do have to take issue with the uh, the Scarlet Tempernel though. Uh, <laughs> he was the guy who rescued aristocrats. Well, uh, from he the did. Public, and uh, He did,
2: but then again, I mean, rescuing anybody is, is kind of a good thing, isn't it? I mean, getting your head it, chopped it, it, off, just, you know, I don't know. Okay, maybe Scarlet Pimpernel wasn't the the best analogy, <laughs> but <laughs> We seek him here, we seek him there, but you really are kind of ubiquitous. I mean, I follow you so closely on Facebook, um, and I see it. It was like one day you're here eating ramen, and the next day you're giving a talk on, you know, at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and the day after that you're in Nebraska doing something else. I mean, you are incredible. Please tell us. First of all, tell us about Changing Tastes, and secondly, tell me how do you compile the information that you publish daily on Facebook alone? Never mind your Twitter
3: feed. Um, well, Changing tastes is um, the firm I founded when I left the Kellogg Foundation uh, Food & Society Fellowship position back in, in 2004. Mm. Um, and it was really um, based on a, a very simple idea we, know all, we all know uh, in our hearts and certainly on our tongues and in our stomachs mm. that the place where food is grown affects its flavor. It's the reason why the Chardonnay grapes in California taste so very different from the ones in France. Sure. Or the olive oil from Greece tastes so different from the olive oil in, in, in Spain. And the reason why food is not really a commodity. Okay. And that every, every acre produces something different. Uh, markets can turn it into all the same, but if, if we treat it well and we grow it well, it's, it's all different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so leaving the Kellogg Foundation, I was very focused on how to turn the place where food is grown into the type of financial assets that companies produce uh, goodwill on their financial statements and balance sheets, where they tell stories about their brand that, that can just simply be made up and how the authenticity of food could create financial value. Mm -hmm. for the farmers that grow it and the communities that grow it in all the different places that produce all the different kinds of food around the world. And it's also an attempt by linking food to place. to also say not every place needs to grow the same thing. Right. Even to uh, local food doesn't mean greenhouse tomatoes and greenhouse lettuces all year long.
2: Right, right. I like the way you think, Mm -hmm. Arlen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay.
3: Keep going. And, um... (laughs) In, uh, in 2007, uh, after having uh, led this portion of Changing Taste and really worked um, to link place and growing methods uh, to, to, to taste and also to and the environment, um, having had a, a great chance to work with uh, the former leadership of the Organic Trade Association mm. to help the public become aware that organic means healthier for you, yeah. not just less pesticides on the farm and really reaccelerate accelerate growth. Uh, say what you will about organic. It certainly is a better way to manage most of the acreage in our country than dousing it with uh, synthetic pesticides and fertilizers onto sterile soil.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but I was really aware that um, the decision about what we eat was moving away from the shopper in the grocery store, or even at the grocery store deciding what to put on their shelves, and that we're spending more and more of our money on food, mm-hmm. and also more of our eating occasions having a uh, culinary professional in a food company select the ingredients, the portions and proportions, and just give us something yummy and delicious. And so when I, when I was headhunted into Sodexo, and able to go work at uh, one of the world's largest restaurant companies or, or catering companies. And that was an opportunity to, to both influence and learn about the business of uh, what uh, chefs and chefs who set the menus for millions put in front of us. Mm-hmm. And today, uh, Changing Taste continues that work on trying to integrate health, sustainability, and deliciousness in food. Yeah. And also to, to break apart the notion that all food is the same, devoid of place. Uh, Food is not a commodity. There are people involved in each step. Um, The most humorous evocation of this, the one I joke about when people are looking for what is it, what is it, how can I somehow, you know, interest the diner in what I'm doing and and let them know there's value is the ubiquitous term that your meal is locally served. But there is uh, so much more that goes on before that that could connect back to a, a special place on the earth.
1: Yeah, and absolutely.
3: so, we do that work, and, and the odd thing is, uh, we do that work, and we help people who are trying to champion those changes in a nonprofit organization, in a foundation, or inside a, a larger food company, or a startup food company do that with uh, data. And to make the business case, looking at consumer trends, commodity price volatility, how supply chains work, and figure out where that spot is where they will do better, because they pull out of a homogenized uh, and industrialized approach. Mm, fascinating. So where that spot is to start.
2: Right, right, right. Well, um, and to that end, let's let's turn to your to a study that you collaborated with uh, the Kellogg School at Northeastern um, that examines the role of corn in the U.S. food supply. Because I think, am I am I wrong in saying that uh, that corn is probably the most ubiquitous uh, ingredient in virtually our entire food supply?
3: Uh, interesting way that you phrase that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just
2: thinking how corn, awkward that was. <laughs>
3: yeah, corn, corn followed closely by soy, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> number two, one and two uh, crops from Monsanto and soon there, yeah. um, are um, the most widely planted crops in, uh, on U.S. Uh, farmland by far. By far, yeah. Um, and we uh, grow a lot of it and we don't eat much of it. Uh, the number one use for those is animal feed. Yes. In fact, the type of corn we grow to feed the cow is not the type of corn that we would want to eat ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, as most everyone knows these days, it may be the type of corn you want to make bourbon out of, though. Another
2: oh, corn whiskey, um, yeah, right.
3: Yeah. So, you know, we grow a lot of these crops. Uh, they're uh, mostly GMO, and they are uh, consume enormous amounts of fertilizers and pesticides so that we can feed them to animals who turn— Relatively large amounts of uninteresting seeds and grains into relatively small amounts of yummier food. Right. Um, so, corn is ubiquitous in supporting our food system from dairy and eggs to beef, pork, chicken. Um, but the part that turns into tortillas, uh, corn syrup, corn flour, and bourbon is relatively small.
2: Uh huh. Corn syrup, I would have thought high fructose corn syrup was pretty much in everything i mean you see hfcs in so many ingredient labels no i mean not just sugary oh, drinks oh,
3: but yeah it, it is certainly the, the use of um of high fructose corn syrup is, is is rampant but all of the ways in which we eat corn directly oh. like we grow corn on the farm and then we eat it ourselves
1: oh yeah right. corn
3: syrup glucose and extra starch alcohols, cereals You know, that's less than uh, 10% of the harvest, at least it was Mm -hmm. a few years ago, Mm -hmm. and um, four to five times as much goes to, um, sorry, about three to four times as much goes to biofuels, but four to five times as much goes to animal feed.
2: Right, right. And I I think everybody realizes, or at this point, how inefficient a use of land, soil, water (laughs) that is, right? Because it's how many bushels of corn per pound of beef, I forget, but it's like, it's something ridiculous. Um, What about the corn that we grow here? Uh, How how much do we grow versus other countries? Like you had a lot of really interesting charts in that study. And um, it basically showed that the United States is the leader in supplying corn uh, in the world whether it's something that we use all of it ourselves, do we export a lot of it? Is our export primarily for livestock feed, or is it for food products or biofuels? or How does that break out, and how much of a, an economic impact does corn have on our GDP overall?
3: Um, so, you know, each year varies by the harvest, and mm-hmm. we looked at just a, a few snapshot years. We did a study that looked at uh, three seasons separated by five years, so we kind of bounded. it. Um, some droughts and uh, and floods in the Midwest. But, you know, here's the bottom line. Um, I didn't look at how much corn affects our, what are we at, uh, how many trillions of dollars GDP, but I would doubt, I would doubt it it surpasses a rounding error. You know, Mm -hmm. we are not exporting uh, $100 billion worth of corn, I doubt. We're certainly not exporting a trillion dollars worth of corn. Right. Right. And almost all of the corn we use, um, we use uh, domestically to feed animals, uh, then to make biofuel, and then to make food for people. Now, of course, we export some poultry and beef and pork. Yeah. And we we may export some cereal uh, and alcohol, alcohol around the world, cereal maybe to Mexico or Canada, as opposed to manufacturing it on site, you know, Uh in in that country. uh but in terms of just uh, exporting harvested corn, um, at least in 2010, it was 2.8 billion bushels, which is about 13 percent of the harvest. The vast majority is is used domestically to make something else, right? Whether that's a box of cornflakes or a chicken leg, right? <laughs> um, but that um, that 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 2.8 billion bushels, it's it, it, on, on on years like 2005 when. There, there was bad growing conditions, it might be 1.8. Um, you know that represents half of all the corn that is traded globally between countries. Whoa. A lot of countries grow their own corn, um, and I don't know what the world harvest of corn is off the top of my head. But in terms of the corn you hear traded between countries, put on, on, on the ships uh, or, or trains the cross-border, uh, the U.S. Uh, export is half the world's market. Wow. And that's largely for animal feed. Right. Um, it's not going there to be turned into biofuels, which are made with local materials.
2: Mm-hmm. If they're used at all. And, I mean, how many countries yeah. have the same biofuel mandate that we have?
3: They don't. And a lot of them make it from sugarcane or whatever the, the biomass is that's there. And, um, you know, without taking this off of corn, um, soy doesn't look too dissimilar. Mm-hmm. With edible oils being the largest use, followed by some industrial uses, think everything from synthetic plastics to ink and newsprint, and then we have this export chunk which goes for animal feed mm-hmm. and also to edible oils in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's going on. Um, so when you think about the, uh, the inefficiency uh, of you know, all that pesticide, all that fertilizer, uh, the sterile soil, all the water. We are also, you know, basically exporting raw materials. We're we're exporting the, the basics of animal feed or maybe a finished animal feed. Right. Um, it's not to say um, that other countries shouldn't get to eat what we eat, or um, but we the we remain the engine for that livestock system. Interestingly, um, probably the reason that we're not an even bigger exporter is that some countries don't want GMO seed in. That's right. Um, and so there's special steps that some countries take to uh, to crack and mill the corn or the soy, so that if it does reach GMO seed does reach their borders for animal feed, there's, the farmers can't replant those seeds and suddenly start growing GMO crops. Right. Perhaps on an, you know without without an educated or informed decision, but they're just looking for seeds to put in the ground.
2: Sure. Well, there was that very interesting uh, article. This is just completely, not completely off topic, but I'm sure you saw that Ted Genoese <clears throat> for the New Republic, I think it was, wrote an article about how they, the the FBI... Um, arrested several Chinese uh, scientists who were literally stealing corn seed out of the fields in Iowa. Yeah. Was yeah. Fascinating, fascinating story. Um, one of the things about, I mean, the reason I'm sort of drilling down on the corn is A, our incredible addiction to it, uh, you know, as a nation for part of the food supply, primarily livestock, but, but also um, corn is, is, has such an impact on world food prices. You know, it's a very volatile market. And um, I remember a few years ago, in fact, when I first started doing this radio podcast, I think around 2007, 2008, uh, corn was selling at $9 a bushel and every livestock farmer was wringing his hands. Um, And I guess the ethanol people were, I don't know, were they wringing their hands? Yeah, I would imagine. But anyway, now it's down sort of back down to sort of the $2 and something a bushel. But why did those, I mean is that just a function of the commodity trading market and trading futures how does that work how do those prices become so volatile and then can you describe some of the impact that that has on consumer prices
3: yeah so um a couple of things so um you know first off uh the price of corn and also the price of beef and other foods have the the nature of the markets has changed and um You know, you talked about one of several studies we've done with the Analytical Mm -hmm. Consulting Lab at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Sorry, Northwestern. Very long title.
2: I apologize. And, you know,
3: a really great collaborator, uh, Russell Walker, who is the uh, Zell professor of an equally long title of something or other at all of that stuff at (laughs) Northwestern University. And we've been going... um, for several years, to dig deeper into the nature of the dynamics of the markets that underpin the industrial food system and the business uh, performance of larger uh, food and food service and restaurant hospitality companies to figure out how some of the risks that we talk about, mm. like climate change, severe weather, drought, opposition to GMOs, you know, all of these things. Right. You know, every, people think about climate change, and still many people think, you know, that is something that's really going to devastate uh, the agricultural system in 30 years. Now, for young people listening, they're going to say, well, that's when I'm in the peak of a career. But for um, people who are leading businesses now, that's when they're out playing golf and retired. Right. Um, but it's not a hockey stick. It's not like everything goes well and then in 2050, boom. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but rather, you know, are the early effects, um, whether it's, you know, the droughts in California that are happening more frequently or the storms in the Midwest in winter that are, sorry, in the East Coast that are coming more severely, um, you know, are the costs now showing up for businesses? And that's really what we're looking at. Right. So um, the corn market went through a couple of changes. Um, There were two big increases in global demand, um, which had to get met with a certain amount of change in supply. And those were some really big price swings. Um, You know, one was biofuels mandate. Certainly now we have another big use for corn. Mm -hmm. And the other was China becoming an aggressive buyer to increase the amount of animal protein available to their citizens. Mm. Um, But there were also two other really big changes in the nature of the market. The first was that um, people began looking at agricultural contracts as a financial investment opportunity Uh or trading opportunity the same way that, um, you know, we buy stocks or mutual funds or whatever. Uh, People began to buy and sell the rights to large amounts of corn um, without any intention of actually growing the corn and storing it or buying it for their use. In fact, if you were a day trader sitting in your condo you know, uh, and there was one who lived next to me and I lived in the twin Cities. the city next to the con- my, my condo, uh, yeah, on the waterfront warehouse redevelopment district in our like 300 square foot spaces, <laughs> the worst thing that could happen is for someone to deliver 10 tons of corn to you. Yes. You know, <laughs> it would be a really bad day for him. And, you know, <laughs> I, I'd be vacuuming for months. You would, um, <laughs> if you could get out the door to get your vacuum. <laughs> yeah. If I could get out the door, um, So what that did was increase the number of times the contracts turn over. And when people began doing that and, you know, financial services firms began um, marketing this as another thing that you can buy and sell, there was kind of a one-time infusion of people wanting to buy their rights to corn. Both those things caused steps up in the price. Now, China has figured out lots of places to buy corn. They've changed their agricultural system some. Yes. Um, They actually recently changed their uh, national dietary recommendations to uh, a much lower level of of animal product intake than they had previously been.
1: Yeah,
2: I noticed
3: that. Translates directly into public policy. And also, people lost enough money on commodities, and there's a whole piece on that that's going to be deadly boring. So we'll skip over that, but there's yes. fewer people trading. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the other thing that happened, and you mentioned biofuels again, was that energy traders got involved uh. in the food marketplace. And they realized that um, up until 2007 or so, a few years after the biofuel mandate you know, really kicked in along mm-hmm. with computerized trading, that the price of corn moved, you know, in line with forecasts about the harvest. And the USDA, before the recession, uh, provided a bunch of regular reports on the quality of the harvest and you know what the corn crop would look like. Yeah. So you could kind of say, well, it looks like there's going to be 5% less, so the price could be a little higher, mm-hmm. or it looks like a good year, so the price could be lower. And you would trade on this news, mm-hmm. and then the harvest would come in, and then things would kind of settle down for a little while. <laughs> Until the next year's planting, again, it kind of said, is the ground frozen or muddy or good when it's time to put the seed in the ground the next season? Um, and what happened also, and this was a subsequent study we did, um, we just um, published some key takeaways along with the uh, Grace Communications Foundation through their ecocentric blog and Grace Links. Um, yeah, I love that thing. Was uh, uh, the price of beef... Yes. would move, you know, 7 to 12 months later. The corn harvest came in, mm-hmm. but we have to feed it to the cows over the fall and winter and next spring and up until the next harvest. So there's this lag, you know. Yeah. If the price of corn is high when we have to buy it for silage or feed, then the price of beef will go up when the animals are brought to market. Um, well, traders realized Uh, earlier, that that price of corn signal would be a good indicator of what we should do. Do we put ground beef on sale or chicken legs on sale next fall? Mm -hmm. Put the McRib on our menu or come up with a a, a triple patty, you know, beef sandwich and go all in on meat. Right. And you could make a decision about look at the harvest and then figure out what does that mean in terms of the price of the food I'm actually going to sell in my store or sell in my restaurant and make a decision. Well, as very smart energy traders detected this pattern, they began to trade in front of the news, Ooh. which is to say that if they saw the price of corn going up, not only would they you know, do certain things like trade more frequently and exacerbate that swing, so the number of times corn prices move 5 or 10% in just a week went up uh, from almost not occurring at all before 2005 um, to occurring um, as often as um, 26 or more out of 52 weeks from uh, about 2007 on. Wow.
2: And that continues to this day?
3: It's slowed, it has slowed down a little, uh-huh. but it, 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 it is substantially a, a more volatile market. Wow. But nice. the other thing that happened is, you know, while um, – Tyson and McDonald's executives could sit and say, "Wow, well, the price of, you know, or Cardinal executives say, the price of beef is going to go up, and McDonald's could say, well, the price of beef is going to go up, we've got to put the, the McRib on the menu again, mm-hmm. or the price of pork will be low, well, let's do that. You know, there used to be time to have a meeting, figure out recipes, talk to your suppliers, put your advertising together. Well, that time has narrowed. Wow. And instead of 7 to 12 months, um, We found that the price swings in corn and the price of beef, as people would say, wow, I just heard the weather was bad in Illinois. That means corn prices are going up. Why don't I go buy some beef futures right now? Uh Not that I want to, not that my freezer in my lakefront house could handle 10,000, you know, (laughs) cows if they were delivered to me, but maybe uh, (laughs) someone else will buy them uh, from me before then. Um, That time span basically went from 7 to 12 months you know, in rhythm with the harvest, yeah. down to a few seconds.
2: Good Lord. Wow. So that there is no
3: time to act on what should I be serving people in order to keep my food costs reasonable. Right. Uh, if I'm a restaurant or to make sure I'm putting on sale an item I can afford to put on sale if I'm a grocery store.
1: Right, right.
3: And so that has changed the nature of the food cost volatility. The cost of food will go up and down with the harvest and what actually happens. But your ability to lock that in or know what it's going to be has gone out the window because of energy traders realizing that food companies uh, act slower than they can uh, program their algorithms.
2: Oh, my God. Arlen, that is like the best explanation I have ever heard about how this works. And I read uh, Fred Kirschenbaum's Fred Kirshenbaum, uh, Bet the Farm. Was yeah, it Fred was that was that his name, Fred Kirschenbaum? I don't know. Fred but,
3: Kirshenman. Kershman. Yeah, Fred Kershman. Yeah.
2: Right. I read Bet the Farm, and I liked the book a lot, but it was like you just made it much more crystal clear to me what happened because somehow that. The involvement of the energy sector did not really resonate with me in any meaningful yeah. way. But that's because I, I, really, I have no financial background. So it's like this stuff is all sort of wading through mud for me as far as unraveling yeah. it in my own pitiful little mind. Um, but OK, so that brings me because we need to push along here. But that brings me to um, a really interesting quote that I took off of one of those Grace Links um, uh, the the EcoWatch stuff, um, relying and this is a quote from your study or from the article about it. Relying on industrially produced meat also increases a host of financial and supplier risks for restaurant companies. You've just described those, according to a series of research studies by other teams at the analytical consulting lab. Water scarcity, climate change, and a number of other changes in the marketplace all make it harder for companies that rely on industrial meat to control costs and manage risk. Okay, that's what you just described, and then the point was, and the title of this article was "Beefing Up Return." Study finds companies offering less industrially produced meat perform better. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about how um, these new sort of models of uh, of all livestock production—it's not just in the beef sector; it just happens to be in that article—but but, but um, you know, all of them, like Nyman Ranch and Emmer chickens and Hip Chicken, you know, all of these other companies that are coming up and they're doing a better job with sustainability and raising their animals in a somewhat different way from the industrial model—and and th- that is clearly, from this article, clearly having an impact on. Um, sort of the overall supply and demand. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Um, and, you know, there's, there's really just a couple of takeaways from this. So what we did is we looked at a universe of 30 publicly traded restaurant companies.
1: Mm-hmm. And this
3: study is available on our website, which you can link to through Grace Links as well, at least the, the presentation deck is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said, you know, what does this mean for your shareholders? Because a lot of people say, well, companies are in the business of making money. And that's, that's just true. Yeah, And very simply, we found that companies that um, either decided to switch from uh, serving industrially raised beef and either increase the share of their menu that's made up of other stuff, which includes chicken,
1: uh-huh.
3: uh, or simply reduce the amount of meat they serve by like using less of it in their recipes, um, or that switched away from industrially raised meats to and I'm not going to dive into it, and we can debate them. But, you know, a host of things that people think of as more natural, which could be grass-fed, mm-hmm. partly grass-fed and grass-finished, antibiotic-free. Um, well, the know, stuff that they all do? The
2: stuff that Chipotle has traded on in terms of developing their yeah. reputation, right? That kind of stuff.
3: And, and, and also startup companies like Elevation Burger are, are doing mm-hmm. today. But, yes, you know, it's the stuff that is... Moderately better to a lot better, and Nyman Ranch falls in there. Sure. Uh, of course, as a supplier to many of them. Um, and you know, basically what we found is this: you know, we we haven't yet separated out this inability to manage the cost of your meat. Although grass fed isn't exposed to the corn um, corn volatility, right? Uh, the price of grass fed meat does move a bit like the price of corn fed meat. Uh, there, there's some ties there because if the price of corn fed meat goes up a lot uh people who are serving higher quality grass fed be i choose to raise the price on that as well uh-huh. um, but what we found is this consumer trend tastes of course are, are preferring less red meat and also um i mean beef beef is in a long uh, decline it's now lasted almost 20 years yes and also preferring uh higher quality meat anyway so we keep, we haven't teased those two things apart but if you move away from Industrial-raised beef to, natu- to to less beef, your stock simply does better, and that is some mix of you're able to control costs and you're meeting consumer taste. And if you keep serving a lot of meat, but go to naturally-raised meats, your stock does so-so in year one, but does better over five years. Wow. And there's a couple of reasons there. You know, first, if you're making that switch, you're trying to potentially pass along a higher-priced item. You're changing your, your flavor profile. You're dealing with new suppliers. You're having to change your recipes. Mm-hmm. And those operational things can weigh on you as you kind of make that transition. Yeah. You know, if you think about who's going that way now, I think it's Carl's Jr. is trying to do antibiotic-free beef. Um, uh-huh. We'll see. It, you know, how, It's hard to say it's really helped them a lot the last four or five months. Um. Interestingly, and this isn't in our study, um, but from some work we, our firm's done, uh, one of my partners was the head of uh, Sustainability and Business Excellence at Compass Group, uh, mm-hmm. where we had a chance to cook a lot of grass-fed beef. As also, as some people know, the use of antibiotics causes muscles to grow faster, yes. which means way more. The so part of that is simply, and also the use of hormones uh, alongside that. But the hormones, especially, and I can't quite tease apart hormone and antibiotic. I'm sorry. That's okay. um, Also causes the muscles to retain more water, which makes them heavier. Uh Uh-huh. So that when you cook them, they shrink more.
2: Yeah. Um, But when you sell them, they they cost more. When you use the (laughs) natural,
3: yeah. Um, So we haven't built this into the model yet. But the move to natural meats may also mean that after a while, you realize you get a higher yield, so you don't buy quite so much per recipe because the finished weight is what matters more than the pre-cooked weight in large restaurants or to the diner, I should say. Um, But whether McDonald's, you know, can move away ever from the quarter pounder to the 316th pounder (laughs) after all those decades of marketing is to be determined that other restaurants are already going. Uh So that's what that study looked at. So, you know, the takeaways are that where consumer tastes and risk in food cost volatility driven by climate change and water scarcity come together, which is around industrial meat, especially industrial beef, which takes more corn than chicken Mm -hmm. to produce a pound of edible muscle. Um, Moving away from those things is better for your shareholders over five years. Uh, Moving to more plants and less meat is better uh, over the near term as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, moving towards naturally raised meat uh, while there's some transitional issues uh, is at least better over the long t- has been better over the long term for this universe of publicly traded companies that make up the bite, the IT and and X, um mm-hmm. for the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq.
2: Mm fascinating this is like this is heady stuff arlen this is really heady stuff even you know for me I, I think that you know what i think about and what listeners think about is like the sort of the sustainability footprint of industrially produced uh livestock whether it's beef pork or, or poultry um and um and i think about sort of like the uh, water issues down the road and it seems to me that uh, i noticed for instance well i'm sure you saw a series you know the the uh risk and analysis consultants firm, you know, C-E-R-E-S series, like After yeah. the Goddess. Mm-hmm. And they did that study last year or the year before called Feeding Ourselves Thirsty, and it measured, like, how much awareness even of potential water shortages and climate change uh, are being um, addressed by big companies like Archer Daniel Midland or or Cargill or whatever. Um, and it's like the companies are starting to see it apparently long before uh, Congress is. And I guess, I mean, since we don't have much time left, I just wanted to ask you about whether you felt that government has a role to play in addressing, um, you know, some of these issues around sustainability in order to sort of push players into a more sustainable model, um, or whether this really is something where the free market is going to sort itself out. I mean, do you feel like that's possible? Or do you think there's going to have to be some governance guidance here? Because I mean, let's, let's also include the fact that it's we do export a lot of our products we export a lot of poultry we export a lot of pork um and those you know those two industries have uh, much to answer for in terms of their sustainability so um what do you think is the answer in terms of trying to push the companies a little further along uh in trying to mitigate some of the um the environmental costs of their business
3: well um a couple of thoughts there you know One is I hope if we do the show in a year, um, we'll be able to answer the question, what will our diet look like if we're grazing our our, our, our livestock um, Mm -hmm. herds in the U.S. and eating grass that grows anyway? Right. Maybe what would it be if we converted all those corn and soy fields back into into grazing land over time and and restored our soil health? Um, Our diet might not have to change all that much given that, Meat intakes dropped 20% in about 20 years, and is looking to do the same again, barring any big pushback and marketing uh, efforts by by the, the livestock industry. <laughs> As to the government government's role in water, um, I think that there needs to be an overt act. You know, setting aside this talk of industrial meat, and regardless of whether you call it a plant-forward diet. Um, like I've helped introduce through efforts like uh, with Culinary Institute of American Harvard, mm-hmm. or whether you call it the Mediterranean diet or whatever, there's a few crops that make up a very healthy diet.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, the PREDIMED study uh, uh, um, showed that eating a lot of olive, olive oil and almonds and other and a few other tree nuts is the key to a really healthy diet.
1: Mm-hmm. And
3: so if we have a limited amount of water and a limited amount of water for food, we need to make sure we are protecting uh, the crops we want to have in our diet, because we know that once an olive tree or an almond tree experiences drought and doesn't get water, it never yields the same amount again.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And yes, those industries need to do more to be water efficient, improve their rootstock and all of that. But if we say we're losing our capacity to grow nuts and olives, yeah. but we're maintaining our capacity to grow ground beef, what does that really say about you know what we're doing as a country? <laughs> So I think the the government needs to link water policy with dietary guidance.
2: Fascinating. Um, Thank you. I love that. That's great. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say. Um, And and to that end, um, can you tell us who you like for the Secretary of Agriculture in the next um, election?
3: You know... I I don't have a a strong uh, candidate here. I I tried to start the rumor last April 1st that Guy Fieri Uh would be the new (laughs) food policy director under Trump. I mean, they they look kind of the same.
1: That would kind of work. I
3: I don't have a a favorite, uh, or you have even thought about that, but I I will call out Zeke Emanuel, who was a fellow at the Center for Disease Control, tried to rewrite the food purchasing standards for government employees. Um, Mm -hmm. He left. His, his position, along with his uh, brother, Rom, yeah. um, before they got to the military and the people who, you know, grow up eating industrial food because they might not have as much income um, or opportunity, yeah. but uh, their, their time being fed by the government will set the future, you know, for what they eat as adults and as they raise families. So I really want to call out Zeke for the work that he did while I was at Sodexo and um, hope that he or someone like him comes in and really links what we grow on the farm, mm-hmm. what we do with water and land, to what we should be eating. And there's, there's lots of great people who could do that. Oh, I hope you just so. Need someone with uh, the political savvy to run big bureaucracies, which is a different skill. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah, and also there's a big, I think there's a bit of a movement in Congress to kind of unite a lot of all the little bureaucracies uh, into a much more um, sensible uh, sort of overall food policy, agricultural policy council. Um, I I will leave you with one last anecdote, which my listeners have already heard because I said it in my Joys and Sorrows segment, but I did, I had occasion, I'm not going to name names because um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jeopardize certain relationships, but but, uh, I was in uh, Congress, I was at the House of Representatives last week, and I happened to stop into um, one of, you know, the office of one of the Republican representatives, and I, I asked him if he'd like to be on the show, and we were talking about um, you know, what, what, what would be the subject. And I said, well, I wanted to talk about food policy and agricultural policy, the farm bill and stuff. And he said, well, industry sets food policy. And then, and then he informed me that no one was starving. And I just thought to myself, like, this guy is so out of touch with what is actually happening, not only in this country, but also in the world of agriculture, on which he sits on the agricultural committee, um, that it was, it was frightening. And uh, and so sort of my takeaway was we all have to work really hard to you know, vote these people out and look at their records and so forth. But I mean, I just thought I would leave you with that little thought that here was a guy who was actually an elected representative telling me that there is no problem with food policy in this country. Blew my mind. Anyway, Arlen, tell people how they can get more information about you, about changing tastes, about the work you're doing and where you're going next. Um, everybody should follow Arlen on on uh, Facebook like I do. It's just a wealth of information. But what else do people need to know about you?
3: Um, well, you can find out about Changing Tastes at www.changingtastes.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever owns com, please respond to my emails and sell me your domain cheaply because it's dormant. You can also follow my Twitter feed at, at Arlen, A-R-L-I-N Wasserman, W-A-S-S-E-R-M-A-N, one word. I'm very active on Facebook because I have it automatically repost my Twitter feed.
1: Oh. And And
3: um, after leading um, the uh, Sustainable Business Leadership Council meeting for the Menus of Change initiative, mm-hmm. hosted by the Culinary Institute of American Harvard, in another uh, day, I will be uh, the uh, the dinner speaker at Farm Tank out in Sacramento. Oh, great! And uh, next week at the New York Times Stone Barns event, if anyone's there, say hi.
2: Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This was like, this was a a naughty, um, gnarled issue uh, that you managed to lay bare in a way that even I could understand. Um, So I thank you so much for that. And uh, thanks so much for the work you do, Arlen. It's great. And I hope you'll come back soon.
3: My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you, my dear. And thanks to Kane Winery for supporting this station for all these many years. And finally, I just want to say uh, the great sorrow of the week for Heritage Radio Network was the loss of one of our hosts, Dorothy can Hamilton, perished in a car accident on Friday. Um, our thoughts and whatever's uh, are with her family and her friends. Uh, she was an amazing uh, leader in food and food talk and just bringing forward the industry, you know, to the consumer, making it all much more, um, you know, just bringing this whole chef and good food revolution so much farther along than it had been. And, and she will be very much missed here at Heritage and certainly uh, at the, um, the International Culinary Center, where she, which she led for many years. So um, great condolences to that family. And uh, until next week, we'll see you again. Have a great week. <clears throat>
1: Hey! Ah.